This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Especially with this weather, uh, although I suppose it's reasonably normal. Although I hear not, I keep getting told on every two metres that it was beautiful yesterday. <laughs> I'm sure that's going to continue. Um, so, uh, explain briefly, well, not briefly, I've been told 15, 20 minutes I'm to talk for, uh, about the, the reasons for this book, and, and perhaps Racing Through the Dark, sorry, uh, I will mention as well. Um, Racing Through the Dark was one book, it was a book that I felt I had to, to write, that I wanted to write to explain about um, what uh, professional cycling had been like, the culture of it, the human condition, the the people involved and my story, because I think my story was not just my story, it was a story of, a, of multiple generations, what, what happened to me. Um, so if you haven't read it, read it and you'll, you'll understand what that's about. Um, but it was one thing, that was, it was almost an apologist tract for, for, for what the mistakes we made. We doped, we, we messed up, we, we live with that forever, the guys that did that. But many of them, including me, I don't, we weren't bad guys, we weren't out there to hurt people. But for many of us, it overshadowed all the things we did, um, and always will. Um, and so when I was coming close to, to my retirement from bike racing, far from my retirement from working life, and, but we do use the word retirement a bit willy-nilly in sports, it's far from that. We suddenly walk into the real world and we actually have to work for the first time. Um, so before walking into the real world, I, I wanted to leave something that was very much um, told the story of what we did, what our job had been, what the, what the life was like. And, and I, I'll read out the, the intro. So when I first started writing this, I, I wanted to... Um, I, I wrote an intro as much for me as anything else. When you're writing a book, you have to start somewhere. So I, I, sometimes you start at the, the end, sometimes you start at the middle, but, and very rarely you actually start at the beginning. And, uh, but with this book, I really did start at the beginning. And uh, this is what I wrote, and I sent it to um, the, the two people that I mentioned in this and asked them before I even started writing, shall I do this? And, and they were like, you should. So this is what I write. This is the, the, opening, the opening, if you like. There's something very strange about a last race with your friends. I don't know if there's an ideal scenario. Vomiting all over yourself and being dropped certainly doesn't sound like it would be the one. Yet maybe it is. It's fairly representative of what most of it has been like. Christian Vandervelde, Dave Zabriskie and I had raced together over a period of 14 years, which, in the grand scheme of things, is not so much. Yet for us, it has been a lifetime. That day, 22nd of September, 2013, was the last time. We got our heads kicked in, yet we managed to enjoy ourselves. Because without saying it, I think we all knew we were going to miss each other, that they'd been golden days we were lucky to have lived through. All three of us came into the sport at a bad time, when doping was rife and ethics were something that we knew of, yet rarely saw put into practice along the shadowy roads of professional cycling. We came, we didn't quite conquer, we doped, we sort of conquered, we crashed and burned, and some of us got back up and tried to fix the mess we'd made. It was a common narrative, although the actions and consequences were different for each of us. And, sadly, there is enough collateral damage to haunt the sport for many years to come. We know a lot about that time now. I've written about it, and so have many others. I want to write something else, a book that years from now, my children can read and see what it was like, what their dad actually did all those years ago, the racer he was. But not only that, I want my friends from this generation to have something that will remind us of who we were. There was more to it than doping. We lived on the road because we loved to race.
And so I wrote that and I sent that to, thank, thank you. <laughs> You're, <laughs> I'm just talking to you from now on. Everybody clap. <laughs> I'm giving you a kiss. <laughs> you clap whenever you like. <laughs> and it was that, and it was the. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Moment's gone. Um, and it was with the. Uh, it was with that I, I sent that to Christian Vanderveld and Dave Zabriskie because we, all three of us are doped, and all three of us we came. It came out that we doped in different parts of our career, but we, we came back in in 2008 with Slipstream which I, I talked about in the previous book and the kind of the, the, the mission we were on to prove it was possible to win bike races clean. And, and at the time, we were zealots, if you like, and we really did, and oddly, those kind of those redeemed sinners, if you like. And, uh, but what we did, we loved it, and we, we, for the first time, we felt we became friends. We'd never made friends in professional cycling. It's not a sport, but we don't have camaraderie off the bike, if you like. It's... it's um, Rugby teams, though, football teams, a lot of teams, they will remain friends after racing. For us, it's very much we race, we go home. You can win the biggest race in the world, and the, big ra the, the more important race is getting to the airport straight afterwards. We change teams, we're on one-year, two-year contracts, we don't live together, we, we only arrive at the races, we, we don't really have any relationships beyond the racing experience. And yet, the group that we formed over those years from 2008, we became, we, we lived together in Girona, we, we became friends off the bike, and it became camaraderie for the first time. And, and this is something this book was about as well, but it's about my relationship with Ryder Hesjedal, who's um, a Canadian cyclist who won the Giro d'Italia, uh, again, who has a past, but won the Giro d'Italia, has been clean since well, over 50, 10 years now, and won some of the bigger, biggest races. And it's, an, it's a total maverick. And such a wonderful character. And I write about him in the book because I really wanted... I've been one of the... Uh, I, I'm culpable of this as well, of saying that modern cycling has become quite robotic and, and, and dull in many ways. But that was a natural kickback reaction, I think, to the doping era. It had to. Uh, it had to kind of have a, a total um, vault fast. Um, in order to kind of reset itself. But I think now we're seeing that with, with the riders, we're seeing, I think the modern generation are one, wonderful characters. But with Ryder Hesjedal and, and a lot of the guys in this book that I talk about, they're, they're, they're really, now that I'm out of it, I realize how lucky I was to have spent time with them and to have worked with them and, and dedicated so much to, to racing. Um, so that was one part of it, it was about the camaraderie. There was another part which I learned from doing the commentary, which I'd started um, a little bit of before writing the book um, by being a pundit at the Tour de France when I was, um, I don't know, <laughs> not allowed to do it. <laughs> Thrown off the team. <laughs> Betrayed. <laughs> the list goes on. I'm totally fine about it though. Um, uh, so when I'd done that stuff with ITV, I realized that by me just talking about bike racing, people really got it. Uh, and I've always said to my friends the last 10 years, because I don't come from a cycling family, I don't, I don't come from cycling friends, it was very much something that I did 
it was my personal mission. I fell in love with it on my own without any, any real help or, or guidance. And so f since I was 18, since I turned pro at 19, I've had to explain to my Hong Kong friends, to, to my sister's friends, to, to my parents' friends what it is I do. And I always said to them, look, the best way I can do this is if there's a bike race on, let's sit together on the sofa and watch it together, and I'll explain to you exactly what's going on all the time. And obviously those opportunities didn't arise very often, but when they did, it was, I could just sit there and I could see everything going on that the commentators weren't seeing necessarily. And I was just explaining it in a very matter-of-fact way. And they'd be like, you could see it was going from black and white to technicolor. And people who hadn't been into cycling before, who were kind of like, oh, I don't understand why you're doing that. They were like, I, I get it, it's incredible. And I'm getting it even more, the more I watch it now, because this is also the, the wonderful irony of, of where I am now in my life doing the commentary. I've never watched bike, I haven't watched bike racing in 20 years. <laughs> I've been like in the middle of it all. And so it's kind of, it's so easy watching it from above or from the side. I'm like, <laughs> you know what's going to happen. <laughs> it's like, oh, I, wish, I wish I'd had that when I was bike racing. So that was one of the other things with this book I wanted to, because I knew, um, and I was saying to Andrew just before, one of the reasons as well, there's almost 90 kind of vignettes in this book. Each one is sort of its own little anecdote about cycling, and it's sort of trying to explain to people what the sport's about, either it be the relationships, the tactics, the races, the, the team, kind of the composition of teams, be it the, the technical side of it or the actual the cycling side of it, the staff or the bike riders. Because if I didn't do it immediately afterwards, because um, I started writing it essentially a few days after my official final contract ended, so around my birthday um, last year, so I wrote it quite quickly. But I wrote it while it was all fresh in my head. The minutiae, when I was, I, I was going over in the plane on the, over the way, on the way over, because I had to refresh myself, and I was like, oh, wow, I can't. There's so, little, so many little details in there that if I decided, took a year and thought I'd write it now, it wouldn't be there. So it's a very raw book, The Racer. It's, it's just, it really is the day-to-day -day stuff. It's all the little things that are going on, which if it had been done at any other point, if I'd waited any longer, it would have just gone, or that freshness would have disappeared. So it's very much done for, and that's, I, I say that at the beginning, for my children, that it's not just racing through the dark. This was the job, very much. The Racer was, this is what your dad did because they'll never know. I've got a four-year-old, a three-year-old, and an eight-month-old, and uh, they're, they're going to just <laughs> not get it. <laughs> you know? I mean, teenagers and go, Dad, why do, why do people still think you're a great cyclist? You're fat. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully this will help that. Um, and then the, the final thing really was, and I think that's, that's throughout the books, this is something, and it's again, to, it was to my boys, so I, my daughter was, was later. I, I had these postcards throughout the book, because my final three or four years, from when Archibald was born, my oldest son, so that was 2011, it was, I was, he was born uh, 10 days before Mark Cavendish's um, World Championship, a week actually, and before Mark Cavendish's win in the World Championships. Um, and I immediately went from there, then to Tour of Beijing. So this was racing again, because that's just the job. You're just always on the road. And I, I was aware, because I was 34, and this is going back to what I was just saying about children, was that it was, uh, they were never going to see it. They were never going to be part of it. And I thought, well, how can they be part of it? My dad used to send me postcards. He was in, he was in Royal Air Force and an airline, uh, an airline pilot. 
and he used to always send me postcards from places. And it was a kind of a nice way of all these places that I'd never go to, of like, oh, Dad is always thinking of me. By then, as being me, took that to a whole new extreme <laughs> and went to every place and began and started writing real sort of snapshots of time. And so in this book, I mean, some people might say it's a bit too personal or not, but I don't think so, because I wanted within this book there to be different voices. Because you may read on a, in an interview or a, a race report or, or um, uh, Twitter, social media, something. But then that's one thing. Then there's also another thing, my story. Or the, and then there's another voice that's going on that was my voice to my children which is a much softer voice, a much more pragmatic voice that is, I've written it to them that they can read when they're older, if they haven't burnt them in a fit of hate. But, <laughs> but um, because, and it's, I thought that was one of the things I also wanted to do with this book, was this idea of me writing down these things, and then there's a co occasional tweets in the book as well, and there's also the postcards. There's all these different snapshots of time taken from different angles. And... Uh, because I think that's very important. I think in the modern world we get lost. We think we see one thing. We think we see one thing on social media. We think that's gospel. We read one interview, that's it. We see one interview on TV, we think that's the opinion. It's not. You have to put all those things together, which is very difficult in the modern world because we do... One book isn't enough now. You have to read one book, see the film, follow the social media feeds, read the interviews, watch the documentary. You've got about five or six or seven different things to paint a picture. And ultimately, put all those things together, you might then meet the person and none of it adds up. We live in a very strange world at the moment. And so again, this, this, this is the closest I could get to, to me on bike racing in one thing, a combination of different things, be it the relationships I have with people, my attitude to racing, the postcards I send to my children, the occasional tweet in, not just from me, from other people, my views on things, um, because I, it's, um, it's much more up to the reader to decide, and hence why it's all vignette-like. It, it'd be a great toilet book. <laughs> <laughs> you could just pick it up, flick it up, pull it open, and read, it, read a vignette. <laughs> but it does all connect. There is a, there is a, a, a string through it all. Um, so, yeah, I mean... I don't really know what else I can say about it. Um, 15 minutes, 13 minutes. How's that, Andrew? This, 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 you know this is a racer because he's got a clock here which doesn't just have the minutes <laughs> and the seconds, it's got the hundreds of the seconds. <laughs> That's how he's timing himself. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you, you talk a lot now and in the book affectionately about your family. You didn't come from a cycling dynasty. Are you creating a cycling dynasty with your kids? That's a good question, actually. Um, it might be by default, or oh, not default, but it's, it's, it's my life. It's my younger sister, Fran, as everybody knows her, I call her France. Um, she's the, essentially one of the big bosses at Team Sky. She's been there since, it was, since the project management. She was taken by Dave Brasford to do the initial project management. She's been through all the roles there. She's now the director of business operations, perhaps the, the number two at Team Sky behind Sir Dave Brasford. And so... Although I'm now out of the racing, she's deeper than ever. And, and you know, the kids, I mean, they're in their sky jerseys with their names. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> Seriously, they wouldn't sign me. <laughs> <laughs> they go like, Archie, Harvey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give it 20 years. <laughs> Millers will be back. <laughs> no, but I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, I've always said I, I get a little bit worried with the modern generation of... Um, of parents pushing their kids 
so much. I mean, it's normal. I mean, I think we see the success that's happening and the amazing success. But that's come from, it's, it's just so much hard work and, and also a lot of serendipity, it's whether you have. I'm, I'm lucky in that I'll know very early if, if my boys are exceptional or not. Um, I can read that. I don't want them to. And my thing is, I want to keep them off road bikes for as long as possible. I want them to do BMXing, mountain biking, play football, learn to play tennis, get de become dexterous, kind of have that kind, become like Peter Sagan. Because I mean, I think we have probably at the moment the one of the greatest ever cyclists, Peter Sagan, and, and he's such a wonderful character. But his his abilities aren't just from riding a road bike. They're, he's a, a wonderful athlete, and I think that's what. Uh, is the best way to, because professional cycling, it's, it's, to be honest, it's not, I mean, it's hard, but it's uh, so much of it's genetics. You can't make a great professional cyclist. They're born. Now, you can build them. Team Sky have taught that, but you can't turn, a, uh, in the modern world, a, a donkey into a racehorse. It's, it's, it's an endurance gene. It's these things you have. Um, so you can start at 15 and find, look at Chris Froome. I mean, he was almost getting killed by rhinos when he was 14. And now he's one of the greatest stage race riders of all time. So I think that's one thing It's much more important. If you have that energy to put into your, your kids, put it into them learning lots of different sports. But for sure, mine will always be cycling. And it's a bit terrifying, but I hope I can help them if that does. They do choose that. Do you, do you think learning all those other sports and ha having what you call dexterousness, do you think that helps with the, the intense psychological demands that, um, that cycling makes? I think it just makes it easier because um, riding a bike becomes second nature. When you're in the peloton, you're less stressed. There's a lot of guys in there at the moment that are very stressed. There's more crashing than ever. It's, uh, there are a lot of um, just not very good bike riders at the moment who are... Who are <laughs> <laughs> who are following the science or at the front and don't have the, the brains to, to really adapt to it. And they're, they're making mistakes. And I think it's, again, like I'm saying, it's been a knee-jerk reaction to the previous generations that now science has taken over and it's all about just purely numbers, 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 which means you've got loads of guys with numbers at the front, but you haven't thought about all the technique involved to be at the front. So I think we need to kind of have a step. But that's going to happen. It always it will be organic. But um, yeah, I just think it's, it's cooler if you've got somebody who can... Like Peter Sagan last year at the Worlds, jumping off the stage. I, mean, I don't know if anybody's seen that clip on YouTube where he's on the podium at the podium ceremony in, uh, in Richmond. And it's a stage about, it must have been about, yeah, this, this high. So it's a proper stage, an auditorium. And he's there and he's getting ready to go. And then he sees his brother, his younger brother. And he just goes, walk, sort of jogging over and just does this big jump and clicks his heel in the air <laughs> and lands around and just puts her hand down dunk, and bounces back up again. And you're like, what? <laughs> I wouldn't be able to walk down the stairs. <laughs> um, you, you said uh, something in, in your brief talk about your attitude to cycling, to, sorry, to racing. Um, and I wonder if you want to say something about that and how that has changed since you have stopped. Um, well, it's been, it's, it's been a kind of a weird, I was, well, I was in Holland, the, the Netherlands last year, and uh, doing an event, and then the, the gentleman interviewed me, said, so, so, how's the black dog? And I was like, what? <laughs> and he was like, well, we all know, because obviously they're a cycling, a cycling nation, and ex-pros always have their two or three years of just like, 
of just lost, kind of like down this deep, depressive hole. At a time, I was like, well, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a bit weird. But then it got kind of strange. I kept, even at Tour de France this year, I'd meet Laurent Jalabert, I'd meet all these ex-cyclists, and they'd be like, how you doing? And I was like, I was like yeah, I'm okay. I was like, they're like, how long are you out? It's like a year and a half. They said, yeah, okay, probably about two years, you'll be okay. And I was like, <laughs> I was like what? <laughs> and it all started to make sense. And even my, my wife, she's like, she's on a five-year plan. She's like, <laughs> She's like, you're going to be fine in three and a half years. <laughs> so, but it is, you, you suddenly realize how much you've been um, institutionalized and, uh, and how much, and all the experiences you took for granted. And obviously, at the end, it's a descending spiral and it all gets very hard and it's, it's just this sort of. But um, then you're out, and then with time, now I'm getting more time a year and a half, you start to recognize kind of how you'll never replicate those experiences again and how it was bonkers and, and how it just you're never going to do that again and so but that's the acceptance phase for a while it was kind of hating it and it's the, the classic scenario of loss etc but no i think it is um it's a pretty we don't we don't have any system for, for taking us back into the real world i think we should invite you back this time next year and ask you the same it's question better. and then every year for the next five oh, years it, when i was getting asked that question last year it was really bad <laughs> I'm going to thread open to the floor for questions because I suspect a lot. If you raise an arm and then wait for the microphone to come, we will um, take questions. Uh, and if there aren't any, I shall keep asking them. Right at the back. And if you could leap up and do a click of your feet as you uh, hand over the mic. Here. Keep your hand up, please. This gentleman first. So I'd be interested in your views on the Shane Sutton affair and the, the whole piece about bullying and sexism within the cycling uh, sport. Do you recognise that, and do you think Jess Varnish had a, point, a, a fair point there? Uh, I think Jess Varnish must have had her point in it, because obviously she felt that way. But my experience with Shane Sutton is he's the greatest coach I've ever met, and the kindest man. I mean, and he's, and he's, he's a rough diamond. He really is. And which is amazing when you think how far he's come and what he's done. But he's still a rough diamond. But that's the magic of him. But bullying, I've never experienced and I don't think I've I just know all the good stuff he's done like really good stuff to people like you'd never they, he'd never tell you stories and I've known it with me he picks you up off the floor he picks up with everybody if I remember the worlds when I came back in in 2006 after my ban it was in uh, Strasbourg I think that uh, was it Strasbourg I can't remember anyway somewhere like that and um Stuttgart Stuttgart <laughs> Close. That's actually quite <laughs> close. Um, uh, and I punctured and I got seventh or I got eleventh, I can't remember. And, uh, and he came into the pits afterwards and he was just welling up. And he was just like, You're betting that, Dave. You're betting that, Dave. Fuck. Fuck. <laughs> and it's like, he, he lives it with you. He lives it with you. And he lives it with you. all those guys. Bradley Wiggins would not have won the Tour de France without Shane Sutton. None of these guys were. Victoria Pendleton wouldn't have won all her, all her stuff without him. Chris Hoy. The whole, this whole generation of cyclists, and I honestly believe that 90% of those, 95%, 98%, we'll see, because it will all start to come out now, will say what a wonderful man he's been. And he's a rough fucking diamond, excuse my language. <laughs> but he is, if you, if you knew him, and you, he was in, you were in his group, professional group or friendship group, and you found yourself on the floor, the first person out of that group who would come and pick you up by the scruff of the neck and drag on your feet would be Shane Sutton, every single time. So yeah, that's how I feel about Shane Sutton.
This gentleman up here. Hi there. Um, Bradley Wiggins and Cavendish um, both made the, the change from road to track, mm. Cavendish very recently. Were you ever tempted by that? Were you ever... Yeah, I was going into it in 2004. I was training for the team pursuit in Athens. Um, but, uh, but it was too late. You know, I already had... I'd start, that was one of the reasons I'd, I was after World Championship. I'd time trial cham world champion. That's where I stopped doping. And I was like, I've got to realize the GB system was where I needed to be. So I started focusing on that. But it was too late for me. I, I would have been... If I was... 18, if I'd just been three, four years younger, um, then I'd have got into the, the lottery funded system. But I was just, I was the last of the foreign legion, if you like, so we didn't have tracks. And Manchester had just been built, I was already in France when Manchester was completed, so I was already gone. Um, so I never really got a chance to do it, but I, I'd have loved to. I mean, I'd love to, I mean, I was pursuit national champion. I'm very proud of that. It's the only time I ever raced on, on the track when I lived in Manchester because I did love it, but I just didn't really get the opportunities. And road was my passion, but now it's a whole different thing. And I think I work with the academy now with the British, the GB team. And I do think it's the best thing for kids because you get to get all that discipline, that training, you can cross it over. And it's, um, it's very quantifiable. And, it's, um, and it's, just, it's good fun being on the track. It really is good fun. It's much different to road racing, which is a lot longer and more boring <laughs> when you're in it. Why isn't it boring just going round? I've, I've always thought going round. Well, the longest, the, the, the longest of, have you been on a velodrome? Yeah, I have. Yeah, it's yeah. terrifying. It's like, <laughs> it's terrifying. And when you're in a race with real good guys, then it's, I used to, you get the whole, it's like, it's just terrifying. And it's like, and the longest event is what, half an hour, 20 minutes. So, I mean, that's a neutral zone in road racing. <laughs> it's like, so, it's, um, no, no, I, I, yeah. I'd have loved to do the track, but I didn't do it, so. Oh, look, they're shooting up. Let's take the gentleman right no, just next to you there. What's your relationship with Voiters like now, and what advice would you give Hugh Carthy? Um, he'll be great mates with you if you're good. <laughs> In a nutshell. Uh, no, I don't have any relationship with him. I haven't spoken to him since before the tour. But none of us, Christian Vanderveld, Dave Zabriskie, um, Ryder Hesjedal, Dan Martin, when you leave the team, he just kills the relationship. So he's a very strange fish. Yeah, so no, none of us have a relationship. So that dream team we had, which we talk about in this book, it's none of us talk to Jonathan Fortis anymore. We, haven't, we all talk to each other, but he's just like, you're with me or you're against me. And he takes you leaving the team as being against you. <laughs> yeah, he's a weird fish, bless him. Yeah. Hi. What's your opinion in, uh, regarding the use of dis experimental ex uh, use of disc brakes in the peloton and uh, a subsidiary question, uh, race radios? Yeah. Um, discs, I think, I mean, I'm all up for technology. It's just in, uh, I'll give you a brief, because I was on the UCI Technical Advisory um, Committee, Working Group, um, regards this last year. Just, we, I'd, I'd never been, no professional cyclist had ever been asked whether we should have discs in a pro bike race. They had a technical commission that decided this. The technical commission was made up by a group of people that had nothing to do with racing that represent manufacturers and all these things. So we found ourselves, or themselves, because I wasn't on the bike and it happened a little bit after me, using disc brakes in the, the, the most uh, extreme situation for a road bike ever to be used. They were putting disc brakes on them, on certain bikes and not, 
and with zero testing having been done. And so you're just like, we're, all of us, all pro bike racers, all of them now, all of them are, are so stuck for technology, but not when it's forced upon you in a situation where it's your, it's your life and death, essentially. And UCI just did, were useless regards the introduction of them. And then even early this year, when they then, they had that, that complete blanket ban, they panicked because they suddenly realized, oh shit, we've made a terrible mistake. Um, they were like, we, I was at another working group and somebody asked, there were only three of us, with the three of the UCI, I said, well, what are you doing disk rates? I was like, we're just going to leave it now. We don't, we're just going to give it a year or so and then come back. And the guy said, well, you can't do that now. You've got to actually bring it back in testing. How are you going to test it? Like, we don't know. So that was a big thing. We're all up for the technology, but don't put it on, on us when it's never been tested. And obviously, every single bike manufacturer in the world is going to say, use it, because every single person in this room who has a caliper bike will then be curious about buying a disc bike. So instead of keeping that bike for 10 years, you're going to go and buy a new one. You're going to sell it and go and buy a new one. So the manufacturers, they're, they're all up for it. Now, no pro bike racer at the moment, I don't think. None of the guys that win the biggest races uh, would complain about their braking. We don't have a braking issue. <laughs> the, the, the new dual calipers with the right, with the right rubber, kind of with the right brake pads and the braking surface is phenomenal. But again, it's, um, yeah, braking is not an issue we necessarily have when it comes to winning bike races. This gentleman here. It's given your experience as the road captain in the World Championships and your position now to take an overview, how do the other teams defeat Sky? Or maybe you don't want them to with a family connection. <laughs> I definitely don't want them to now. <laughs> we get free stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, it's amazing. Don't you? Um, the thing is with Sky, and it's th this year, and again, watching it for the first time properly, they're, they're, they're being dynamic. So they, they were able to dominate cycling the first few years by just applying science and controlling the variables and taking all that, that track knowledge and, and, and the marginal gains. And really, because no one was doing it in cycling. So now that everyone, all the teams have caught up with them. Or you see Francis Dejour doing so much different training rather than time trial. They won their first ever team time trial this year. Roman Badet, all these new French guys love Team Sky. It's like the dream team. They're like, this is where we want to be on a hyper pro team. Team Sky have seen that and seen them coming up. And so now they're doing all that the same. They're getting their equipment. It's all very, everyone's so close now. They're changing their tactics. And their tactics are becoming really interesting. Now granted their budget allows them those tactics when you've got nine guys at the Tour de France and four or five of those could be independent leaders in other teams that's that gives you strings to to play but what they did is I thought really interesting and Chris they got a leader who's incredible Chris Froome he's he, he's impulsive now They're, they've given him that card so I think probably into this year teams are thinking now we can beat Team Sky they're so boring they've come out of Tour de France they go oh no <laughs> now what are we going to do so I think it's, no, no, they've, they've managed to stay one step ahead. But that's thanks to the riders and, and Dave Brailsford and the directors, um, really. It's not just the, the science now, it's, it's come down to personality. And I think they're, they're letting them, they're, they're becoming, they're letting their personalities do the speaking as much as their legs. There's a gentleman over here. I've lost sight of you now, thank you. Wait, wait for the mic, please. I'd like to ask what the difference in principle is between using altitude tents and using EPO because the IOC has banned 
altitude tents from the Olympic Village and the Ethics Committee of WADA condemned them in 2006, but the full committee of WADA took fright because they were in such common use and they still are in common use, particularly amongst top athletes of all countries. Well, it's a performance enhancing device, but is it invasive? Is it, um, it's, it's, it's again, it's that gray area, isn't it? Um, I mean, I think the, the, the point of the, the anti-doping rules and, and let's say the anti-cheating rules, it comes down to ergogenic, ergogenic kind of performance enhancing. So is it artificial? Now, yeah, maybe a, a tent is, but you couldn't say that they're cheating. So it becomes quite... It, Italy for years, I think for eight years now, banned altitude tents in Italy, more, maybe longer. So different, different countries have different rules in these things. Um, let's, let's hear from uh, David. Um, no, no, but it's, I think it goes, it goes down to the fact that if, you're, if you can't afford it, then does that mean kind of you're, you're at a disadvantage? So, but again, it's expensive to go to altitude to train. The bottom line is it's performance, and it's, performance and, and it's performance. And I think I, I don't see the, the big deal with it because I know from experience going up to altitude alone is bloody expensive. And so to then say well, you can't have a tent because that's expensive. Actually, if you equate it, you'd probably be cheaper to have an altitude tent at home than it would be to go to altitude camps. So, and altitude camps are probably better for you because it's more consistent. You're up there the majority of the time. You can go down and you can put yourself under stress at altitude as well when you choose. So, I don't, I don't think there's necessarily a, an argument. Hence why when you put these to the ethics commissions, etc., they these are very, very well-educated people that go through all these arguments and discussions and will come up with a, normally a very valid and unarguable decision. So there are smart people out there doing it. We'll take this gentleman over here. Hi. Um, you're obviously a world-class time trialist, and I've always been interested in, in what the special attributes are that make a time trialist compared to just a, a regular cyclist. So what is it that you've got and Cancellara's got and guys like Tony Martin have got that separate them from the, the rest? Um, you have to have a big, we call it a big engine, a big cardiovascular engine. The ability to, to, to hold a high power um, for, for a sustained period. So, I mean, that, and hence why it's normally slightly bigger guys so Fabian Cancellara, although he can climb incredibly at times, Tony Martin as well, me occasionally, we're not consistently good climbs because we're bigger. We're actually just got a bigger chassis. So it's which, because you've got a bigger chassis, you've got more muscle, you've got bigger lungs, you, you can put out more power. Um, so most time trials are up to an hour long. So even on a climb that's like 55 minutes, 10 minutes effort, you could beat a pure climber because it's just your body can, can maintain that, that stress for that long. So generally, that's what it is with time training. The bottom line is it's a massive cardiovascular effort. So you have to be able to. And again, now looking back, it's quite a bonkers sport that it's a sport where I, I do think about this. If you were to say, OK, uh, Mo Farah, all you guys, all the runners, we're going to give you a point here and a point over there, uh, 10 k's away. Right, go as fast as you can. I think it would be brilliant do a time trial for, for runners. <laughs> like, honestly, it would be so good, wouldn't it? It's like, why are they just running around in circles? <laughs> like, let's give them a time trial. But then essentially that's it. It's the same It's endurance athletes at that level. It's, um, once again, to high-level high endurance, just pure point-to-point, -point, no tactics. You know, at CAV, 
I mean, he's great in prologues up to six minutes, seven minutes. And we saw in the Omnium, did a 4.16. It would have put him on the podium, Olympic record just eight years ago. Um, so he's got an amazing engine, but that engine can only go for six minutes, seven minutes in a flat out effort. But it can be the, but for one minute, two minutes, it can be the biggest engine in the world. So each one of us has an engine we're born with, and it, it can do different things. Now, mine can go up to an hour, an hour just over at its best. And that's what most of Fabian, Tony, Bradley, we've got those cardiovascular engines. But then you get the, the, the Grand Tour climber guys who can do the repeated efforts. They can do that over and over again. It's like lesser power because they're smaller, hence why they can climb so well. So each one of us in a race has so many different things, hence why we have different stages, so we all get a chance to win something. <laughs> so, so it is strictly physiological and not psychological, because that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, I think because you, it's the chicken or the egg, I think because you've got the physiology, you then target that event, and then, then, it, then you come down to kind of narrowing it down to what you, the variables, and, and then psychological, yeah, I think you have to have, it's quite a clinical event. It's a very non-emotional event. So, again, but I do think, I mean, sprinting is very emotional, because it, it's so explosive, but the best guys are very rational. So I don't know, I think it's just elite performance. Once you get to that point, it's, um, you then, the best guys are always rational when they're at their best. Does the gentleman keep the gentleman at the back? Keep your hand up. Um, you one of my favourite things in your first book is a photograph of yourself and a young teenage admirer named Mark Cavendish. Um, how much do you recognise and how much satisfaction do you get from the inspiration you've given to a younger generation of British cyclists? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, mass for mine. There's a good story behind that because Cav, it was at the 2007 Tour de France. Um, uh, well, we were starting in London, and we were staying in uh, Canary Wharf somewhere. I was in my hotel, and uh, I got a knock on my door. And I, got, I opened it. And it was Cav standing there. He's like, got your present. <laughs> He's like, look at it. I was first, I was like, what? He's like, yeah. He's like, I can't believe you did that. So if a little kid came up to me now, I'd tell him to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> which isn't true, but he's, no, that's what he said. But, but which isn't true because he is nice, but he can be like that. But it was just like, I always remembered that. I always remember how nice you were to me. <laughs> I was just a fucking little idiot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, but, um, but it is, and you do realize over time, when you're in it, you don't really know, and then as you get older, you suddenly kind of you start to realize, when you have younger pros come up to you, and even Daryl Limpy sending me a picture, this just a couple of weeks ago, of, at the Worlds in Zolder, of me and him, and he was like, and it's a picture of him and his South African national team, as a junior, and he's like, it's like, it's one of the greatest days of my life. <laughs> and it's like, you start to think, well, I do have a responsibility to these things, and especially I work with the GB Academy guys, and you do realize what a massive responsibility you have because they do look up to you and you do have to really, but that comes, it's, it's very rare to find that early on because you're so narcissistic. Um, and then as you get older, you suddenly realize that it isn't just about you. There was a guy up here. Yeah, uh, you've got a new and developing career as a race commentator and you've described in, in your book previously about the frightening aspects and the challenges of being in the peloton. What's the frightening you. aspects and challenges of being a race commentator? Uh, getting it wrong. <laughs> um, I suppose, yeah, I mean, that is it. It's, it's the kind of, um, 
it's a difference, I suppose, with Ned. Ned's, Ned's very self-conscious when he gets a ride or wrong, and I'm like, ah, it doesn't matter. Because <laughs> um, I get them wrong as well, and just kind of rolls off. And I, I read a brilliant article in The Economist, it was last year, about um, it's almost the endless sunshine of the spotless mind of an ex-athlete. You go in there still with that confidence that you know everything's going on. You'll hear me, and I'll be like predicting things that completely don't happen. <laughs> But I've contradicted myself so quickly, like 20 minutes later, to convincing everybody that something else is going to happen. I'm pretty sure if you look back at a lot of my commentary, I'm just, a lot of it I'm making up as I go along. Which is what you do in bike racing as well, you're adapting to situations. So you believe in a situation that's happening, you commit everything to that. And then all of a sudden that crumbles and it's like, okay, no, this is actually happening now, let's do that. And so I, I kind of quite enjoy doing that. But the biggest fear is, is really calling it completely wrong and, and putting it on the line and then just going, but... Fortunately, I got Ned to like buffer me. He's like my firewall because he'll get more wrong with me always. <laughs> <laughs> There's a question somewhere here, and then over there. Do you enjoy professional bike racing now more or less than you did when you were racing? Uh, it's two different things, I suppose. I mean, I, I I've rediscovered the love. The, the, doing the commentary thing has been the, the best. Uh, medicine, if you like, the best antidote to the kind of the falling, it wasn't falling out of love, just getting tired of it and just, and then the way I, it ended was, was quite bitter for me with, with my team and Tour de France, etc. And then, and then getting the distance now and going to the Tour de France and, and it really is the other side of the barriers. Because um, we always say that, you're on the other side of the barriers now. But because we, we commentate from the finish, um, so once the race is finished, we're there for another hour afterwards. We then get in the car and then go to the next finish town. And then that morning's pretty laid back. Then we go to start and we get in the, the, the truck and start. So you never see any of the bike races. Never, I never didn't see a bike racer the whole race, which is madness. Apart from the Champs, then bumped into Dan Martin and Geraint. But, and then Christian Vandervelde is my old teammate. He's working for NBC in a truck next door. And uh, I saw him like three times. And so you just kept working with the kind of production crew. And so you just focus on the bike racing. And, and I, I loved it. And I think you can, I get so overexcited when the race starts to kick off. And I've been told to speak slower. <laughs> so I'm just like, I can't help it. It's just all like, Pfft. and uh, no, I, I do. I, I love it now. I get really excited. And I, it gets, takes me back to where I was. But when I was racing for, until the last few months of my career, I was just, just every bike race, I was out there to smash myself because I just had so much fun, which I think, yeah, it was just, I always did, I always loved it, loads. Apart from the doping bit where I started to hate it along, but that's another story, literally. Um, but the Olympics um, and stuff recently, there's been a lot of talk about who is the greatest cyclist, um, and I'd be interested, excluding yourself, of course, um, who you think. Give you a kiss as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come up and give you a kiss. <laughs> there you go. Did you, Love give, it. did you give my auntie one? I gave you a kiss. <laughs> so if you come to the signing tent afterwards, he'll kiss all of you. You know what to do. <laughs> Shower me with compliments. Anyway, back to the question. <laughs> uh, my auntie actually stalks you, but uh, that's why I'm here. No, no. Um, 
Yeah, who do who do you think is the um, greatest cyclist and and why? Oh, I think everything about cycling. Is, I mean, obviously, quantify. We always say Eddie Merckx because it's just numbers. Um, I think I think we've got a few. I I, I think Cav's amazing. I think Bradley's amazing. I mean, I I like my generation because I know them. It's it's. Uh, I ride a Hesjedal. I think Christian Vandervelde was a kind of like, oh, I, I'm biased. <laughs> I'm biased and I can't help it. I, I'll always prefer my generation of people I know who had great success to, the, to those others that I didn't know. Because I know what the sport's like and I don't, and I'll, the deep down, although I love it and naive, I'll, I'll keep a bit of cynicism. If I don't know you, I can't judge you. I'll never call you the greatest if I didn't race with you. Because I only know the people I raced with and that who I shared bedrooms with. As weird as that sounds, but that's what professional yeah. type. And uh, I didn't kiss them. <laughs> there was a question over here. Cav said in the radio this morning that he loved riding the bike, just for the pleasure of riding the yeah, bike yeah. and the freedom that it gives him. Um, do you think, will you continue to ride the bike through your life, David? I do now. It took a while off because, again, because I came from a different background. I was, I was a pure racing pedigree, if you like. I didn't do it socially ever. I got a road bike to race when I was 15 in Hong Kong. Cause I got, and so I never had social groups. And it's only now towards the end of my career that I started to ride my bike with friends. And, and I do it now, right? I'm very lucky where I live in Spain that it's, it's not raining all the time. <laughs> but it doesn't matter, because like, even when it's raining, it's, it, I used to love racing and training when it was raining, because it felt so much faster, weirdly. But um, no, no, now it's purely social vehicle. I don't have any devices. I don't use devices at all. I don't look at numbers. I just go and ride, stop at cafes, stop at, have lunch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, long lunch. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, it's, it's for me. And that's why I want, it's lucky my boys will get a different introduction to it. They'll get that introduction to it. No data, go out for bike rides, socialized. I met a gentleman today who's 80 years old who did John and Groats at Land's End. And you think, yeah, that's what I'd love to do with my boys and their teenagers. It's like they're going on an expedition. Take us two weeks, but you know, kind of do that sort of thing. It's, it's, that's where that's what it's all about, I think. Then, if the racing's a byproduct, if you happen to be into that. There was a question over here, and then at the back. Uh, hi, David. Uh, as a spectator looking at the Tour de France, just wondered if you could give us some insight about the crowd and some of the challenges this year. It just seems to be getting worse year on year, and it's really detracting from the enjoyment of. The spectacle. Any insight as to what the authorities might be trying to do about that? Well, I, sadly, I think it's going to come to more and more barriers. It's it's just going to come which it it has to. I think it's it's part of the the new world of um, these things. You know, famous not 15 seconds for a five second gif. You know, and it's like um, so the sport's changed slightly in that, and the audience has changed. There's people that are just out there to 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 try and get themselves shown. But again, it will change, but I just hope it doesn't sanitize the sport too much because unfortunately the big events are gonna have to really buckle down and kind of barrier up everything, which was never the point of it. You're supposed to, the beauty of bike racing was it was free, you could go up there and see your hero come by and if you wanted to, touch them. There's no other sport in the world that's like that. So, but we'll see, hopefully it'll start to settle down. There might be more education and, and different things. I think this year there was a series of unfortunate uh, circumstances, especially with Mont too. I think that was just a, a general meteorological-based cock-up, but <laughs> they still shouldn't have let it happen. 
when I was younger, you were able to do um, time trials on the equivalent of a co-op message bike, and <laughs> it cost about two and six. I mean, now bikes are costing thousands. Do you think that that additional cost means that ordinary young so I kids... I can't see where you are. Oh, sorry. Exactly here. Is like, yeah. Do you think that ordinary young kids now can't get into cycling in the same way as, as a, a previous generation? And they, what can be done to ease the barriers to entry? Well, I think it, 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 we might come down to... I mean, I do this, just, and they do it a bit with the GB team as well, is, is equipment limiting. So as a junior, you're not allowed to race on a time trial bike. I think they should do that for sure. It's uh, until you're or cadet until you're 50 until you're 16, you're not allowed to to do a time trial on a time trial bike in a, in events in proper events. Then 17, 18, they're allowed to use time trial bikes, but maybe just tri bars. And you, I think for juniors, they have the gear limitations, and then really do get do equipment limitations in order to to like you said open the budget up. Otherwise, you're just going to have rich kids coming along or, or psycho fathers who have just pimped their dad <laughs> their 15 year old boy out with a 10,000 pound bike. And uh, that just shouldn't happen. The point is, it's, it should be, it's, it's much more funding. And when you're going out there, at that, at that age, it's the only time you'll get to race against people uh, on a level playing field. So they should try and find a way of making it a level playing field. And then, as they go up through the ranks, open it up slightly each, as they go through each generation. So when they get to 16, you're allowed to use tri-bars. When you're 17, or so when you go to Espoir, then you can use full TT bikes. And, uh, so maybe that's a, a solution to that. But I do agree. I think it's very, it's a daunting prospect for any parent to have a child that that falls in love with cycling because it can be a big investment. Mm. Outside of the uh, super teams, the pro budgets are actually quite small, financial budgets in the kind of global sports context, and yet the teams seem to consistently face really precarious financial position. So I'd be interested in your view on why that is and what you think can be done about it to make the sport a bit more uh, stable. I actually wrote a whole vignette on that and this. <laughs> I was just reading on the plane going, wow. <laughs> um, no, it is, it's, the thing is the sport, it's a, it's a global sport that's, that's essentially a cottage industry. Um, we have no revenue sharing. Each team is an island, if you like. They have no, we don't have ticket sales, they can't merchandise, do, from, from merchandising products because why would you buy sports a jersey when you don't know if your rider's going to be on, on that team next year or if the jersey's even going to look the same or if it's going to have the same name. So that doesn't work either. There's no revenue sharing from TV from the race organizers. The race organizers aren't unified. You have ASO that own the majority and they don't share anything. You have RCS which has events. You have uh, Flanders Classics that have their events. UCI has World Tour. They only own one of two events that pro bike riders would do. It's the World Championships and the hour record. So that's the only things the UCI actually own that can take revenue from. Again, that's not shared with the bike riders or the teams. So we have a fundamental um, business issue with cycling that's going to be very hard to rectify, and I think someone's going to have to think outside the box to fix it. But at the moment, it very much is a cottage industry on a global stage. But I explain it in a much better way in there. <laughs> Hi. Part of my question already got asked, answered, but um, going back to the spectator issue, we saw him bump onto Chris Room reenacting uh, Kate Bush song. <laughs> Running up that hill for anyone who didn't work that one out. Um, just what is going through your mind, and this is going to be expletives probably, what's going through your mind when you see that sea of people and wondering if it's actually going to part in time before you get to them? I think I've never actually really seen it. 
Yeah, very few bike riders get to see that. It's like it's, it's only Tour de France when you're right at the sharp end of the race, uh, you know, on a mountain stage. I've seen a couple of time trials and maybe once or twice in my career. And then it's, you're so buzzed by it anyway. The, you have to remember, because that would be one of the, the tragedies of the barriers, because I think the riders will admit as well, the energy you get from that is amazing. It's like, it gives me goosebumps now thinking about it. Because I've been in it and it's just, you feel the sound, you feel it kind of just, and it, it gives you a second wind. So there is, it's, it's, um, it's paradoxical in that respect in that you can, you know it's like, oh God, is it going to open up? But at the same time, you're like, I love this. So it's kind of mixed. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I hope we don't in five, in a few years, just have every single Tour de France mountain finish with barriers either side and no fans running around or no open, sea opening, because that's what it's about as well. Gentleman here. Uh, it following on from an earlier question, really. Uh, Premier League costs a lot of money for fans to go to uh, cricket. You name it. Uh, it costs a lot of money for a fan to go to. Whereas um, Tour de France and Paris Roubaix and so forth, you show up. How does it feel to an athlete? To I mean, this is top top athletes, we can go and watch perform for free. What, it, what's it mean to the sport that it's essentially free to? The, the audience. That's a, I think that's a pass for, and I think every bike rider would say, "Well, that's what we we were all fans that went to bike races and got to stand next to our Gary Andrew, <laughs> getting getting like getting washed down after the race, or or coming and signing autograph from the start and talking to you. You know, I always remember Tony Romagnoli when I was I was first. I was ninety six. Ninety six. I'd gone to Belgium to race as a junior, and um and the Mappe truck was there, and outside was Tony, he'd packed this skull, I can't remember what race it was. Anyway, he was there, and his, his bike was out inside, with the hairnet helmet and the handlebars, I told you, and I was like, it's right there. I could just take it off the handlebars, <laughs> and I could just go. And then a year and a half later, I was in the same team as him at Cofferty's, and rooming with him, and I told him the story, and he was like, I'm sure I was just taking it. <laughs> well, like, But yeah, so it's like those moments, often without the theft, um, <laughs> it's, it's nice. And I think we, we'd all be sad. It's one of the reasons we love the sport is, it is it's such a people's sport. It always has been. It's the people's sport. And it's, um, I think it, that should never be lost. We shouldn't be in, hidden away in boxes. And Team Sky tried their first year was to, in the warm-up zone, is have big black glass around so the riders couldn't be seen. And Christian Poudom came up and he said, take those down. <laughs> this is not what we're about. And I say, we should never lose that. Yes, um, Armstrong obviously dominated the tour for several years with the use of drugs, but he obviously had a tremendous human engine as well. Do you think if he'd been brave and said, I'm not taking drugs, do you think he could have won a tour? Um, not at that time, no. No, not in that era. Maybe now, but again, probably not. But I think that was a whole different era, and it was a whole different, it was a whole different playing field with different... It was, a, it was just different. It was like a different formula class in motor racing that just doesn't equate to anything that we're doing now. So it's very hard. I mean, they're going as fast now at certain times as they were then, clean. So it's, it's, it's I think, because of that period. It's just we can't compare it, unfortunately, which is part of the tragedy of doping. You can never compare a doping performance to anything else because it's not real. Yeah. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I'm really sorry uh, we have to bring this race through the achievements of David Miller to an end in only one hour. What a time trial this has been. You've been able to come up. Some of you had the chance to touch him. Some of you had the chance to, to kiss him. There's been no barrier. But now please come even closer. Join us in the sign sense. Ladies and gentlemen, a remarkable man, David Miller. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.